church leadership in this way. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Father, if these next 45 minutes and these next five weeks of studying church leadership are going to be time well spent, then you will have to come and you will have to be our teacher. Your Son, Jesus Christ, is the head of the church. And so if individual local churches are to function as they should and the leaders are to function as they should, we need to hear from the head of the entire church. So Jesus, we pray that you would speak today. And Father, I pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit, enable us to hear what you say and to accept what you say as your plan for us your good plan for us. God, I pray that you will help us begin to pray about how we should implement your good plan for us. But today, begin by teaching us and helping us to see what that plan is. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you have heard of a man by the name of Stonewall Jackson who was a general in the Confederate Army during the Civil War. Jackson is widely recognized as one of the most brilliant military tacticians that our country has ever known. He is credited by many with almost single-handedly winning bloody battles for the Confederacy solely on the strength of his military brains and his boldness. In fact, today, all across the world, Despite all the modern advances that have been made in warfare technology, General Jackson's battle plans are still studied by military leaders and tacticians. He was incredibly important, first as a leader in the United States Army and then as a leader in the Confederate Army. His value to both armies as he served was incalculable. And that's why on May 2, 1863, when General Jackson was shot by friendly fire, it was a great loss to the Confederacy. Initially, his being shot resulted in the amputation of his left arm. And then eight days later, on May 10th, 1863, General Jackson died. And with him, according to many historians, died the chances of Confederate victory. Why is that? Well, at his death, the Confederate troops, many of them became demoralized and their fighting wasn't what it had been when he was leading them. As he lay dying, having had his arm amputated, General Robert E. Lee, who was the other main Confederate leader, reportedly said, Jackson has lost his left arm and I have lost my right. That's how important he was to their cause. In fact, historians speculate 
that Stonewall Jackson's death may be the single most important human reason why the Union and not the Confederacy won the Battle of Gettysburg later on in the summer of 1863. And those same historians will point out to you that the Battle of Gettysburg was the turning point of the Civil War. So how do we summarize that? Summarize it by saying this. It is quite possible that had Stonewall Jackson lived, we would be sitting right now only eight miles north of the border of a whole other country. That is an amazing possibility. Even when we acknowledge the good hand of God in overruling and governing the outcome of the Civil War, which we should do, it was God's good hand that caused the war to turn out as it did, But even when we acknowledge the good hand of God in governing the outcome of the war, Stonewall Jackson's story still forces us to admit that leadership is extremely important. Nations rise and fall on the strength of leadership. There's a Christian speaker, John Maxwell, who says this, everything rises and falls with leadership. He may be stretching it a bit when he says everything rises and falls with leadership, but he's not far off the mark. In the military, in the business world, in the schoolhouse, in the home, leadership is of immeasurable importance. How much more then in the church of Jesus Christ, where the glory of God is at stake and where the welfare of eternal souls is at stake Leadership in the church can be the difference, humanly speaking, between heaven and hell for dozens of people or in a larger church for hundreds or even thousands of people. We've probably all seen how poor leadership or no leadership at all can cripple a church. And I hope that many of you have also seen how godly leadership can be a blessing to God's church. Leadership in the church is vital we need to know God's mind on this subject. And the Lord hasn't left us without specific instructions on this subject. The Bible is very clear when it comes to who should lead and how they should lead and how the rest of us should follow. And so for the next five Sundays, we're going to weave our way through the Bible, listening to what God says and attempting to apply it to Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church. We're going to begin this morning by pondering the Bible's teaching on the leadership of a group of men called elders. Elders. So let's start this morning just with a question that may already be forming in your mind when I use the word elders. You may be saying to yourself, what is an elder? What is an elder? Many of you, like me, come from a church background where you may have never heard the word elder. So when I mention That word today, the first thought that comes to some of your minds may be the Mormon missionary, Elder Joseph, who knocked on your door the other day. Others of you might think of high school football, the Elder Panthers, right? Most of you probably think of elderly people. You think of how your mother used to always tell you to respect your elders. And the Bible does sometimes use the word elder with that meaning. But in the New Testament... The word elder came to refer not necessarily to someone's age, but to 
a distinct leadership office within the local church. In the New Testament, elder doesn't usually refer to age, but to a distinct leadership office within the local church. That's especially true in the book of Acts and following once the local church had begun. So the question then is, what is an elder? Who fills this leadership office? What does he do? What is he like? What is he supposed to be? We're going to think about those questions in the coming weeks. But today, just this simple question, what is an elder? What does the Bible say about these men? And I want to give you a two-part answer. What is an elder? Number one, an elder is a recognized spiritual leader in the church. An elder is a recognized spiritual leader in the church. An elder is the person who's responsible for the care of the souls in the church and the ministry of the word to the church and the overall direction of the church. He's a spiritual leader. We see that definition begin to unfold in those verses we read a few minutes ago, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. And I want you to notice as you look at them again that Peter addresses this group of spiritual leaders using this term that we've been using, elders. This is the common New Testament title for the spiritual leaders in the church. But I want you also to notice in verse 2 that he describes their tasks as shepherding and oversight. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. So the elders are the people who shepherd the church and who oversee the church. And therefore, you'll find on occasion, as you read the New Testament, that the elders are referred to as sometimes overseers and sometimes pastors, which is a modern English equivalent for the word shepherd. So the three terms, elder, pastor, and overseer, which the King James translates as bishop, elder, pastor and overseer slash bishop. Those three terms are used interchangeably in the New Testament. They all refer to the same men, the same office. But each of the three individual terms has significant meaning attached to them. They use those terms because those terms meant something. So let's think about the terms elder, overseer, and pastor. The term elder, first of all, which Peter uses here, was taken from the custom of the Jewish synagogue. The spiritual leaders in the pre-Christian Jewish synagogues were called elders. So the apostles, who were themselves Jews, simply transferred the term over and used it to refer to spiritual leaders in the church of Jesus Christ. The term itself, both in the synagogue and in the church, connotes spiritual Maturity, spiritual maturity. An elder is someone who is mature. Elders are, as Peter says in verse 4, to be examples of the flock. They need to be mature so that they can be examples. So the term elders refers to the mature spiritual examples, leaders in the church. Then there's the title overseer. Remember, Peter says, exercise oversight. The elders are sometimes called overseers. Now, the title of overseer was borrowed from the Greek world. Overseers, or as we said, King James bishops, 
is the Greek word for political or religious superintendents. There are men in the Greek world who were in charge of religious activities or in charge of uh, civic activities and so on, and they were often called overseers. And so it seems that as the apostles took the gospel into the Greek world, that they borrowed this term as well because it was familiar to the people. And so they began to use it interchangeably with the term elder. And they began in some of the churches apparently to call the spiritual leaders overseers, the same as they had called them elders in the Jewish context. But again, just like the word elder, the word overseer is helpful when we find out what the word really means. Now, our English translation overseer gives us a very clear definition of what this Greek word episkopos meant. It meant to look over, to watch over, to see over. The elder or the overseer was to look over, to manage, to guide, to direct, and to maintain order in the local church. He was to exercise oversight as Peter says in verse 2. So we have the term elder, we have the synonymous term overseer, and we have a third term, shepherd. Shepherd. Peter uses that as a verb in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. The noun form is also the same word, shepherd, and we translate it in English as pastor. That's the common word that we use for a leader in the church, is he's a pastor. Simply an English, modern English way of saying shepherd. Now, the term shepherd or pastor very obviously comes from the world of agriculture and it describes the elder slash pastor's concern over his individual sheep like that of a shepherd. His feeding of his sheep with the word of God like a shepherd would feed his own sheep with green pastures and quiet waters. The term shepherd refers to the pastor's protection of the sheep. Paul told the elders in the town of Ephesus that there would come a time when savage wolves would come in seeking to destroy the church. And just like a shepherd out on the hillside has his rod and his staff to beat back the savage wolves, so does the pastor have the word of God and the knowledge of God through the word of God so that he can protect his flock from deceivers and from error. So the elder overseer pastor is a man who is charged with setting an example of spiritual maturity. He is a man charged with overseeing, ordering, leading the overall direction of the church. And he is a man charged with feeding, caring for, pastoring the sheep. And Peter says he's to do this all with Eagerness and not lording it over the flock. Verses 2 and 3. I want you to notice one more thing before we leave 1 Peter 5. And that is this. Notice that these men were given titles. Peter uses the title elders. We've already mentioned that there were these other two titles. Overseers and pastors. They were given titles. We don't emphasize the fact that they were given titles so that we can... I put elders on a pedestal, but we emphasize it because it indicates that they were set apart for the church. They were recognized by the church for the task of leadership. They were ordained in our modern parlance. 
So when we refer to New Testament elders, we're not simply referring to all the mature Christians in the church, but we're referring to men who are specifically set apart to the tasks of oversight and servant leadership. That's why we said that elders are the recognized spiritual leaders in the church. This is an office in the church. It's not just we look around and say, oh, he's mature and that guy's mature and the other person's mature and so we'll consider them elders. No, these are men that God intends that we recognize, set apart, and ordain for leadership in the church. Now, so far, we probably haven't said anything that seems all that unusual to you. You may be even thinking to yourself, of course, we agree with what you're saying. You're giving your own job description. And that's true. I am giving my own job description. But I want you to see something else, something that you may not have thought about yet. And that is, number two, that an elder is always a member of a larger group of elders. Number one, an elder is a spiritual, recognized spiritual leader in the church. Number two, an elder is always a member of a larger group of elders. God never intended his pastors slash elders to do their work alone. He never intended that his local churches be led by one elder but by a plurality of elders. I want to show you that in three different passages, beginning in Acts 15, verses 1 through 6. So turn with me to the book of Acts, find chapter 15, and then begin following along with me in verse 1. Again, we're looking for the fact that God never intended his church to be led by one elder, but by a group of elders. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And do you see what was happening there? Paul and Barnabas were on their way. They'd gone out on missions, and now they were on their way back to visit the church, singular, at Jerusalem to discuss this problem. But that church, singular, at Jerusalem, had plural elders. Verse 2, the apostles and elders. Verse 4, the apostles and the Elders, verse 6, the apostles and the elders. One church, the church of Jerusalem, several elders. We see the same thing happening just a few pages over in Acts chapter 20, verses 15 through 17. Turn to Acts 20, 15. Here we pick up Paul again on a missionary journey. And again, he's on his way back to Jerusalem. But here he's going to meet with a different set of elders. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we crossed over to Samos, and the day following we came to Miletus. 
For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So here it is again. We have a single church in the town of Ephesus, but that single church had plural elders. You can notice this singular church, plural elders. Again, if you turn now to James chapter 5 and verse 14. The Apostle James instructs us like this. I call him the Apostle James. He wasn't one of the twelve disciples, but he was sent out by Jesus, the brother of Jesus. And he speaks this way. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This is an important verse for those of you who are ever sick. We practice this in our church. In fact, uh, a few of us went to the hospital yesterday to do just what James commands here for Roger, who's having surgery in the morning. But the main thing I want to say for the purposes of this message is that here again, James is speaking of a singular church and speaking of that church as having plural elders. He must call for the elders of the church. It's a third example of plural elders within a singular local church. And this is always the New Testament pattern. In fact, if you go home and get out a concordance and you do a word study of the terms elder overseer and pastor, you'll find that these words are almost always used in the plural. In fact, the only times when they're used singularly are A, when a particular elder is speaking about himself. So Peter, the elder in chapter 5, speaking to the other elders. Or B, you'll find singular elder when spiritual qualifications are being laid down for individual elders in order to determine whether or not they should be a part of the group of elders. So even in that case, there is always this background of there's a group. Now let's decide who belongs in, into the group. The Bible never envisions a pastor slash elder working alone. While it never specifies how many elders are enough, the answer is always more than one. Circumstances may sometimes force a church to have only one elder, but a solo pastor elder is never the New Testament ideal. And some of you may now be thinking to yourself, oh, I get it. What you're saying is, is that every church should have multiple staff, and you want us to hire some staff to work with you. That's not what I'm saying. You need to recognize that church staffs did not really come into being until recent decades. So when the Bible speaks of a plurality of elders, it's not envisioning a paid staff that's hired from the outside to run the church. What the Bible is envisioning is a group of spiritual leaders who are recognized and appointed from the inside to guide and lead the church. Some of them may be paid staff, just as some of the pastors slash elders in the New Testament were paid. You can see that in 1 Timothy 5.17 for your homework. Some of them may be paid, but most of the elders in the New Testament were simply godly, 
layman who held secular employment, but who also worked alongside any paid pastors that the church may have had in spiritually overseeing the congregation. So every church ought to be looking around for those kinds of men. Men who rise like cream to the top and join the paid pastor in shepherding the church. Every church ought to have officially recognized co-shepherds who work alongside with the pastor. And we're going to talk more in coming weeks about what it might mean for a church to have elders who are not just paid pastors. We're going to talk more about who those men might be in our church. But for now, let's simply say that any church will be much healthier and much more biblical if the leadership and spiritual authority in that church is placed in the hands of a group rather than on the shoulders of one individual pastor. That's what we're working towards in this message series. That's what we're working towards in revising our constitution that the deacons and I will present to you later this year. We're working towards having a group of spiritual leaders in Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church who are called elders. Now let me try and anticipate another question that may be forming in your mind. First, you may have said to yourself, what is an elder? Now you've heard what an elder is, and you may be thinking to yourself, why do we need elders? Why does Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church need elders? Everything seems to be going okay. Are you saying that we're not as healthy as we could be? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Are you saying that one pastor, namely yourself, can't do it all? Yes, that's also what I'm saying. I'm saying that Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church needs elders, plural. And in saying that, I realize that there are a whole host of questions or maybe even objections that you might raise if this were a question and answer type format. One person who is very kind and generous might protest, don't feel inadequate, Pastor. I think you're doing a fine job all by yourself. Another person might say, elders? We've never done it that way before. The seven last words of a church. We've never done it that way before. Someone who's a little bit more pragmatic may think to themselves, aren't our deacons already doing just what you've been describing? Aren't our deacons leading the church? And someone else might secretly wonder, I know Presbyterians have elders, but we are Baptists. I never heard of Baptist elders. All of those are legitimate concerns and questions. And I'm sure for some of you, those thoughts have already run through your mind. And so what I want to do is try to give some answers to those kinds of questions that may be raised. The overall question, again, is why do we need elders? Why does Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church need plural elders? Let me give you four good reasons. Number one, why do we need elders? Because plural elders are biblical. Plural elders are biblical. We've just finished looking over four 
different passages that all teach this New Testament pattern of plural elders within a singular church. We saw 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. We saw Acts 15, 1 through 6. We saw Acts 20, 15 through 17. And we saw James 5, 14. I want to give you six more passages concerning elders that you might look up on your own later today. If you have a pen, get ready, and here they are. Acts 21, 15 through 18. Acts 24, verse 1. Philippians 1, verse 1. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 20. And Titus 1, 5 through 9. Now that's no less than ten New Testament passages that teach the concept of elders. And we'll look at quite a few of them in the coming weeks. But for now, I just want us to examine one more verse. And that is Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. So turn over to the book of Titus chapter 1 and the fifth verse. And read what Paul has to say to his young associate, Timothy. Excuse me, his young associate, Titus. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now, God is concerned that his church be set in order. And therefore, he orders Titus to appoint elders, plural, in every, sing, in every city, singular. Now, don't be confused here. The Bible uh, is saying every city, not every church. But we might begin to think to ourselves, well, maybe within every city there were several churches. Well, that wasn't the case. The gospel was brand new in places like Crete. Each individual city would have only had one church. So when Paul says appoint elders in every city, what he means is appoint a group of elders in every church. Every church, Paul says to Titus, should have a group of elders. There it is in black and white in the pages of Holy Scripture. Every church needs a group of elders. And that's reason enough for us to adopt plural elders. Because the Bible says so. Let me give you a second reason. Why do we need elders? Because plural elders are strategically beneficial. The reason God designed His church to function this way is because it works. Plural elders work. Having a team of leaders as opposed to an individual pastor is actually better for the church. And let me quote for you Mark Dever, who's the senior pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., on why plural elders work so well. He says, Probably the single most helpful thing to my pastoral ministry among my church has been the recognition of the other elders. The service of the other elders along with me has had immense benefits. A plurality of elders should aid a church by rounding out the pastor's gifts making up for some of his defects, supplementing his judgment, and creating support in the congregation for decisions, leaving leaders less exposed to unjust criticism. Such a plurality also makes leadership more rooted and permanent and allows for more continuity. 
It encourages the church to take more responsibility for the spiritual growth of its own members and helps make the church less dependent on its employees. Our own church in Washington has enjoyed these benefits and more because of God's gift to us of elders. And do you hear what he's saying? No pastor can do it all. A pastor needs other elders to work with him, to round out his gifts, to make up for his defects, to supplement his judgment. No pastor can do it all and do it all well. Likewise, no pastor will live forever. Someday a pastor will either move or he will die. And when he does, the vision of the church can die with him in just a year or two without a pastor. Unless there are other elders in place to guard the vision and guard the church. So the church needs constantly to be recognizing and training spiritual laymen to work alongside the pastor to strengthen his ministry, to bridge the gap someday when he is gone. So why do we need elders? Number one, they are biblical. Number two, they are strategically beneficial. Number three, because elders are different from deacons. Elders are different from deacons. Now this becomes crystal clear when we turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 Verses 1 through 6 is a description of some difficulties that came in the church in Jerusalem with the distribution of the benevolence fund. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve, the twelve apostles, that is, the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of of the word. This statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying they laid their hands on them. This episode in the life of the early church teaches us that there are two separate kinds of leadership in the church of Jesus Christ. There is a group of leaders who are in charge of spiritual oversight, namely, verse 4, prayer, and the ministry of the word. And there's a group of leaders who are to be in charge of temporal matters. Namely, serving tables. Verse 2. Now this passage doesn't name either office. But these two tasks, as you read the rest of the New Testament, fall respectively to the offices of elder and deacon. Elders exercise spiritual oversight in the church. And deacons exercise temporal oversight in the church. Elders and deacons are not the same. Deacons are called upon to oversee nitty-gritty things. Things like benevolence, building maintenance, budget concerns, and so on. They do these things, first of all, because they need to be done, but they do them also so that the elders are freed up to take care of prayer 
and the ministry of the word. The church needs deacons so that the elders are free to study and pray and teach and counsel and guide the spiritual direction of the church. And unfortunately, most churches in our day don't distinguish these roles very well. What happens in many churches is that either the deacons or the pastor are called upon to do everything. To do both tasks, the spiritual and the temporal oversight. Some churches have pastors who are expected to stock the food pantry and fix the leaky faucet in the bathroom and cut the grass and preach on Sunday. And it doesn't work. Other churches have deacons who are expected to visit the members and teach the Sunday school and guide the spiritual direction of the church and then make sure the bathroom floors are clean and the sound system's running well. And that doesn't work either. There is a group of men set aside for spiritual leadership and another group set aside to handle the temporal affairs of the church. Elders and deacons. And we have a group of men who, by necessity, have functioned as deacon-elder hybrids. And those four men have done an admirable job. But no one can do it all. That's why God has appointed two separate groups of leaders. There are elders who lead and deacons who serve. And when we line those men up in their proper roles, the church then can function like a well-oiled machine. So why do we need elders? Number one, because elders are biblical. Number two, because elders are strategically beneficial. Number three, because elders and deacons are not the same. And number four, we need elders because having plural elders is a very Baptist thing to do. It is not unbaptist to have plural elders. Now, if you look around today, you might not suspect that because today most Baptist churches don't have plural elders. They're either led by a solo pastor or they're led by a staff of pastors, paid pastors. Very few Baptist churches are imitating the biblical model, but this wasn't always the case. Let me just read to you from two early Baptist documents, two early confessions of faith in this country. The Philadelphia Confession of Faith was the the very first Baptist confession that was published in America. The very first Baptist statement, this is what we believe as Baptists, was the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. And here's what they said about leadership in the church. The officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church are bishops or elders and deacons. Now you remember that bishops is the King James word for overseers. So what they're saying is the officers of the church are overseers slash elders and deacons. Two offices. Elders, deacons. Now, the very first Southern Baptist Confession of Faith, the first official Southern Baptist Confession of Faith that was published was called the Baptist Faith and Message. And it came out in 1925. We have a version of it today that has been revised a few times most recently at the beginning of this century. But the very first Southern Baptist document reads like this. The church's scriptural officers are bishops or elders and deacons. Same thing. Elders slash bishop overseer and deacon. 
Those are the two offices of the church. And I want you to notice in both of those confessions that both elders and deacons are always mentioned in the plural. The church is singular. The elders in those documents are plural. The early Baptists read the Bible and came to the same conclusions that we're trying to come to today. Also, listen to W.B. Johnson, who was the very first president of the Southern Baptist Convention back when it was formed in the 1840s. On the issue of church leadership and of elders in particular, he says this, A plurality of elders is required for each church. A plurality of elders is required for each church. That's about as clear and succinct as we can get. Our Baptist forefathers thought that every church should have a group of spiritual leaders called elders. Not every early Baptist practiced a plurality of elders, but a large and influential number of them did. So having elders is wonderfully Baptist. Some of you then may be thinking, okay, if we have this history, this Baptist history behind us, and we have these clear teachings in our Bibles, what gives? Why have I never heard this before? Why don't most Baptist churches today practice what we're saying? Well, there are a couple of answers to that question. One is very simply that we don't always pay as close attention to our Bibles as we ought. One reason why Baptists don't have elders is because Baptists don't always pay attention to their Bibles like they ought. Now, I just want to illustrate this by asking you to turn to the book of Philemon. Thinking about elders, turn to the book of Philemon. I'll give you a moment to turn there. There's actually nothing about elders in the book of Philemon. I just wanted to give you a chance to try to find it to help you gauge how familiar or unfamiliar you might be with your own Bible. It would have been really embarrassing if I had asked you to turn to Philemon chapter 2 and some of you would have been still looking for it to this moment. You get my point. We talk about being people of the book, but we don't always know the Bible like we claim. And the reason why many churches don't practice what the Bible teaches about elders and other things is because pastors and congregations don't really know their Bibles as well as they should. Then there's another reason why Many Baptists have forgotten about elders. Namely, that the Baptist branch of Christianity in America spread most rapidly in the frontier among pioneer settlers. Churches were started here and there. Often they were small churches. They were rugged, wilderness-type churches. And they didn't always have enough qualified men to serve as elders. So what they did was they settled for the next best thing, a solo pastor. They need someone who could read and someone who had studied and someone who was spiritually mature. And if they only had one, he was the pastor. And sometimes one pastor would even serve several churches as a circuit-riding preacher. Before we're quick to second-guess this, we just need to bless God for these men who did everything that they could for the advancement of the gospel. But it was a less-than-ideal situation. Gradually, people began to think of the solo pastor as the norm. Gradually, people began to put all the weight of the ministry on this one man 
whom they had called to be their preacher. So even when the churches grew and began to have qualified men who could serve as elders, they simply kept the solo pastor model because it was all that they knew. Now, that's part of our history too. But by God's grace, we still have our Bibles to go back to. By God's grace, we have an opportunity to go back not 150 years to the early Baptists in this country, but 2,000 years to discover what God's original ideal was for His church. And I thank God for a growing number of Baptist churches who are doing just that. They are going back to the Scriptures and finding out what God really says. And we have a chance to be a part of that wave, to, to ride the wave. We have a chance to be a part of this back to the Bible movement. It's going to take adjustment if we're going to do what the Bible teaches us about elders. It's going to mean hard work and earnest prayer and serious thought as we lead up to our December business session to discuss and ratify these things. We're going to have to become intentional as a church about training men for the roles of elder and deacon so that we have men in place. Let me ask you, Aren't Christ and His bride, the church, worth the hassle? I believe they are. The song that we're about to sing reminds us why this is so important and why the hard work is worth it. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is His new creation by water and the Word. From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. With his own blood, he bought her, and for her life, he died. Isn't the church, the bride of Christ, which Jesus bought with his own precious blood, worth the effort? Shouldn't that blood-bought church strive to be every bit the beautiful bride that Christ has called her to be? Of course she should. And if she would, she will have to take seriously the Bible's teachings about elders. I hope that you've joined with me in doing that today. And I hope that you will join with me in the coming weeks as we dig deeper into the Bible's teachings on the church and her leaders. I want to pray now that God would help us. Father, help us to think clearly about these issues. Help us to think biblically about these issues. Help us with all the different thoughts that may be in our minds as we hear these things, some of us for the first time. Help us to filter them through Your Word. God, help us to love the church, the bride of Christ, so much that we would want to be beautiful. And that every that you prescribe for our beautification we would take it and love it and do it I pray this in Jesus name Amen like to
encourage you to open your Bibles now to the book of First Peter, in the fifth chapter, in the first verse. First Peter chapter five, verse one. Peter writes about the subject of